Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. I really appreciate you deciding to spend some time with us here today. Now we know the way you show up as a teacher has a big impact on those around you. And today I'm chatting to Megan Sweet and she's from Your Three Eyes. Now her mission is to create a more equitable and inclusive education system by using the greatest assets it has, which is the people. Now we all get drawn into the things that we have to do within the system and how our focus is, is taken one way than the other. The way Megan works with that is to take a slightly broader idea of how that works with the three eyes, intellect, insight and intuition, and how you then build a deeper connection to and appreciate for ourselves, students, colleagues and the community at large. This is a really interesting conversation about how she uses this idea when she goes in and talks to schools and communities to change their system and to look for answers in a slightly different way. I hope you really enjoy this, but just before this fantastic conversation with Megan, here's a quick thank you to our sponsor. Thank you to the National Association for Primary Education for their long-term support of the Education on Fire podcast. To get a free e-copy of their professional journal, Primary First, please go to nape.org.uk forward slash journal. That's nape.org.uk forward slash journal. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you, one, for being here and also for being here so early, as I know it's an early call for you over there in the U.S., yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell me, your three eyes, what does that mean to you? And give us a little bit of insight into what that is. So your three eyes, I, I came up with based on my years in education and what I was seeing was missing in my own personal life, but also what was missing, I felt like in the work I was doing with school leaders, um, so in, with school leaders, I saw a lot of paralysis around being able to make decisions and move forward. I think as educators, we get kind of stuck in looking at data, kind of think about what we want to do, what's the plan to move forward. But sometimes you can get stuck in that place of, of like looking at data or feeling like there's so many different pressures on us to make decisions that it can be hard. So the three eyes, um, when I thought about it for school, I had um, school leaders in mind and just the number of conversations I had around that. Um, what they are is um, really just lenses that we can use to look at our lives. So intellect is one that we all use anyways as educators. It's probably our favorite. <laughs> it's the one that we go to, which is, you know, a prefrontal cortex. It's our logical thinking and reasoning brain. It's what makes us humans. Um, and that's a fine and, and wonderful source of information for us. But it, it does make mistakes. Um, what we think and know and what we perceive is based on our subconscious programming. Um, and, you know, so our, our subconscious mind sorts through a lot of things. So what we actually think that we know and what evidence we feel like we have that's filling this um, logical thinking brain sometimes is wrong. So that's why we need to have two different um, lenses to help us. The second one is insight, which is really actually starting to understand what some of that subconscious programming could be. So what are the beliefs, the cultural norms, the ideas that are influencing the way we walk around? I conceive of those almost like um, 
colored glasses. So if in my in my book, they're literally look like like sunglasses because th those norms and programs literally shade how we go about and experience life. We we go through life experiencing through those different experiences. So it's important that we know that they're there and how they're influencing us and whether or not we want them to. In education settings, uh, insight is a lot of perspective taking. So it's reviewing how things have happened in the past. What things that we try as teachers or school leaders that worked or didn't work, how can we learn from the past so we can apply that forward, as well as knowing about our own personal um, influences and how that's shaping the way we're interacting with our students and our families. And the third lens is intuition. And that one's really about learning how to get out of our heads and back into our hearts and our bodies again and learn to connect back with our, like trusting our guts. Because I think actually as educators, and it's been my observation of all those leaders that I watched kind of stuck spinning in, in this analysis mode is that they actually had a sense of what the right thing to do was, but they were afraid to act on it. Um, they couldn't explain why it made a lot of sense to do it. Um, so I think starting to learn to listen to that, especially maybe using your your intuition is the deal breaker. <laughs> if you have two different options to go, which which one does your intuition intuition encourage you to go with? Um, so that's how the three eyes, those are what the three eyes are. And I just think that when you learn to view your own life through those three lenses and view your school life through those three lenses, it's a little bit like putting on a pair of three-dimensional glasses. Um, you know, if you look at that image, a 3D image, I have a image in front of me of a tiger and you can tell that it's a tiger um, but it's kind of blurry but when you put on the 3d glasses suddenly it jumps out at you from the page and you see a lot of more depth and dimension um, my experience is the same thing is true when you go through your life using those three lenses you just you see a little bit more clearly and it really seems to me that if we show up in our classrooms like that then the modeling the, the kind of witnessing that the pupils then get to see becomes very organic, doesn't it? Because they, they, they can understand that in a very natural way. And so you can also see that the reverse must be true as well. Like I say, as soon as you're paralyzed, as soon as you're second guessing, when you're just, just going through the motions, that's kind of then what you're giving to the rest of the, the pupils in your class. And, and, and so it's a double whammy. If you can do it for yourself, mm -hmm. then that has massive impact on everyone else around you. Yeah, totally. I, that's right. Um, you know, we as humans um, have a, um, we have mirror neurons. And so basically that means that our nervous system is a collective one. So unconsciously we are picking up all the time, the energy and the, what other people are communicating back out to us again. Um, and so if we're uncertain, if we're feeling, you know, like not grounded, absolutely our students are picking up on that and they'll start to get kind of wiggly right so <laughs> i think it was the worst discovery for me as a as a young teacher i remember i had just a, i had a bad night i woke up and i was just you know you wake up on the wrong side of the bed i had that day i went into the classroom and i remember thinking to myself i just need everything to go well today so that i can kind of get through this day and and of course everything fell apart right of course you know that was when the kids started acting up and you know i had all the things that go down, go wrong. At the time, I didn't understand about this collective nervous system, but what was happening was my students were picking up on my bad mood and they were responding based on how they respond to people that are in a bad mood. So it's that fight, flight, freeze response that we often talk about. So you're absolutely right. It's a double whammy. If we can be in control and, and aware, we're able to be much more intentional and we have a direct impact on our kids. And so when, when we're more aware they're going to help us out um, one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So just take us into that kind of professional history that you just you spoke about there in, in terms mm -hmm. of having your own class and everything. How did that then sort of morph from your early career into where you are now? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It was not intentional. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I wanted to be a teacher from an early age and um, probably because I was one of those learners that didn't do well in school. So I am not an auditory learner. So I need to see things. I need to write them down. I need to really like be involved in my learning. And in most of my childhood, you know, was teachers kind of talking at us. So I spent a lot of my childhood being pretty lost. So I knew for a young, from a young age, I wanted to be a teacher. So I became a teacher at 21. Second, I was out of school um, and I taught middle school for 10 years. Uh, a few years in, I noticed how much, you know, access to opportunity. So whether you're wealthy or not, in the United States, we have a big problem with implicit bias and systemic racism. So students of color, um, low income students, students or English learners, how dramatically they were struggling in school as compared to students that didn't have those identities. Um, and I also saw how much money was an issue in school. Um, in the United States, we are, do not fund our schools well, um, especially in California at that time. I think we were amongst the lowest across all 50 states. <laughs> we were like number 47. Um, so I got really curious about that and decided to leave teaching and get my doctoral degree uh, in education change management, which basically means how do you create a change in an education setting uh, with this focus on finance. So how does money um, influence our ability to make changes? How does money influence access to opportunity and how can we use our money differently? So that's what I studied in school. Um, while I was doing that, I became a turnaround assistant principal, like um, not quite the head of the school, but next to the head of the school, um, uh, turning around an elementary school in a, in a low-income community. And so I got to have this experience while I was learning about it to actually implement a change and make some of those same decisions that I was studying in school. And I think that really cemented for me what that work was. It, was. it wasn't just conceptual, it was absolutely lived on the ground and it informed my work a lot. So it was a really great opportunity. And ever since then, I've been leading changes for others. So that's kind of the main work that I do is I, I go into school communities, I help them envision a change that's gonna be for the benefit of their students and families and I co-create it with them. So that's kind of how I've, I've been doing things for the last, yeah, for the last 15 years. <laughs> wow. and. Take us into how that works, because I'm fascinated by the finance thing. I mean, over here in the UK, we're the same, you know, it's underfunded and some of it's ring fenced and, and it's all sorts of things, which makes it obviously very tricky. Um, but I guess when people hear finance and how that makes a difference, they might think, oh, I'm going to have a new building. I'm going to paint the walls. I'm going to do something mm -hmm. else. But I'm, I'm guessing, by the way, that you're talking, that's not necessarily the, the answer to everyone's problems. So, so take us into how that worked and, and your experience with that. Yeah, so I think, so I think first and foremost, at least in the United States, although I imagine it's true in the UK as well, the people who end up having to make a lot of those financial decisions have never been trained to do so. So that's our number one problem. So in the United States, what often happens is if you're a strong teacher, you become a, a school leader. If you're a strong school leader, you move into the leadership of, of your school district or the, or the area schools and then on and up. But um, teachers never get financial training. School leaders get very minimal financial training, you know, like very minimal, but all of a sudden we're making decisions with lots of money. So I think that's the first problem that we have is that we're not trained appropriately to use money in an intentional way. So what happens is people just re and like, they kind of just almost like pass 
along the same bad decisions that their predecessor did because they just don't know any differently. So that's number one. I think it does go to these shiny things that you're talking about, which make a difference, but they just don't necessarily make a profound difference. So I think it does matter when you go to a school that's well painted and a building that is up to date and, and looks nice. I think that does have an influence on kids and it makes them feel like they're in a place that's special. But that's not where we can end it. And it tends to be that's where we end it. <laughs> we, we create the new building, we paint it, we create something nice, but actually we haven't changed what's happening on the inside. Um, so we need to learn how to use our, our resources that we have more intentionally, make some bigger risks perhaps around how we spend money um, and just be really, really yeah, intentional about the outcomes that we want to do and, and make some hard choices. Um, so I think that people want to do the changes, but then they don't want to have the hard choices on the other end to like actually clear the path. And you have to do both. You have to let go of some things and have some difficult conversations with the community and with staff around things that have to go away if we really want to go towards whatever direction they're envisioning. Um, and then you can go there, but it, it does have to be both because um, we're not in a world where we can just spend whatever we want right now, especially not in education. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'm interested in terms of the two sides of that. Do you start from, this is the pot of money we've got and how can we use it best? Mm -hmm. Or do you also include in, the, in that, this is our plan and what we'd like to achieve as a school. This is the money we have now, but where can we get more from? How can we use mm -hmm. what's available now, but how can we make the, the vision the most important thing and try and find ways to work? It? Do, do they both work together or, or um, yeah, just take us down that path a second. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I usually do both. So when I'm working with the school community, I want us to be grounded in the vision of what's possible. And so I think when we limit ourselves to here's what we have, we have this small pot of money and now we're going to build into that, then we tend to be limited with what we do. And we tend to stick with the, we're going to paint the walls, we're going to get the new textbooks, and we don't actually dream big enough. So we need to really ground ourselves in a common vision that's based on data. Again, if you use the three eyes, there's data in there, there's a vision, there's a hope. Um, but there's also, you know, we have some sense of what's going to be most impactful for student learning. And then we look at our constraints as well. So currently, this is what we have. Um, often the vision can be realized. It just takes more time. I think also just helping people understand that sometimes change is going to take multiple years or, you know, maybe what we want is... I don't know, new play structure that was that came up in a conversation last night with, <laughs> with some kids. So uh, I know that's not necessarily educationally impactful, but let's just use that example. If we want to transform the schoolyard and have a new play structure be there, perhaps we can't afford that in year one or even year two. But in three years, we can take the same amount of money that we would normally use for schoolyard improvements and save it so that we can get it in a, in a third year. That might mean that some students won't access that play yard. That's true. But ultimately, we'll be able to have something that's nicer, that's going to be more enduring. And so I think it is a little bit of both and um, knowing what our constraints are is important. Having some of those hard dis discussions about like, if this is what we want, what are we willing to get rid of? Um, what can't we have if this is something that feels really important to us? Does, do we have the play structure or the school garden? Which is it um, if we can't have both? Um, and then fundraising. Yeah, we can definitely get money, but you have to have the vision there. Yeah, and I, and I guess that's where you get the buy-in from the community, both within the school and maybe slightly further afield as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I found that, um, you know, for the fun things like adding stuff, it's pretty easy to get a community buy-in and everybody's happy to go for it. Where I think school leaders get resistant and fearful, and I understand why, is actually going to the community with like, here's this thing we have to take away. 
or here this here's this thing that's not working. But I've found, um, and it's never failed me yet, that actually when we tell the community about that stuff as well, um, they're able to work with us better. They might not like it, but they'll understand it and they'll be able to um, start to marshal their resources in support of that change as well. So I think it's just transparency, sharing the challenges, being honest if the school is failing and why. Um, even though that's a scary conversation as well, we have to put all these things out there if we actually want the community to work with us. So full yeah, transparency. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and and also that sort of authenticity, isn't it? It's kind of, you yeah. know, here we are and we're trying to do the best of it that we can. Yeah. Um, I mean, you brought up a really interesting point about the, that like you say that the, the play frame idea in terms of there may be some children that don't get the chance to access that because it might be two or three years down the road mm-hmm. so how do you have that conversations within within a school in terms of we're planning for the future but of course we can only give to the children what we have now in the best way that we can so mm-hmm. how do you kind of keep the intentionality of doing the best we can for the immediacy of the people that we have in our in our classrooms at the moment even though the long term is going to be different for those children who may be a couple of years down the line yeah that's a really great question i think sometimes it's helping them to see that people have done that for them so especially in schools that have had a lot of change just helping them to understand that there are legacies that they're benefiting from that other students didn't and that's just a little bit of the part of of being in a school community or any community. There's always gonna be advancements, but it doesn't mean that everybody gets it right away. And just grounding everyone in that that fact. I think the other thing is there are often things that we can do in the short term that recognize the needs of the students and families that aren't gonna necessarily get the big thing that's growing later. I love talking to kids about those things because they actually are the most helpful. I actually took my son on a school walk once. I had to do a, a review of a school campus for some of these very same things. And I just asked him, mostly just to entertain him, frankly, so it wasn't some big, deep decision, but it ended up being an interesting one. I asked him, from his point of view, what would need to be improved on that schoolyard? And the things that he saw were not at all the things that I saw, like not on any level whatsoever. You know, he wanted things like the basketball hoop net to be repaired. And he noticed these small little places where the paint wasn't finished. That To me, I was like, oh, that's just like... That's just like window dressing, not a big deal. But to him, it was a really big deal. So I think when you're having these things that you're going to build over time that some students aren't going to get, have them, you know, enroll them in what can we give you now? Or if it's, you know, our community, what can we do to meet you now? Understanding that you're not going to be able to get this big, shiny thing that's coming later. Um, and often there are things that we can do. And that goes a long way. Yeah, I really like that. And um, I had a piece of advice from someone who was on the podcast before that talked about they'd they'd had a mentor who'd ma- had a massive difference in their life. And they said, you know, you know, sort of what can I do to, you know, to pay you back? You know, you've kind of completely changed not only my outlook, but my prospects and what I'm able to achieve. And he said, do the same for somebody else. You know, uh-huh. you can't there's nothing you can do for me at this moment, but you can do it for someone else. And I think like I love that in terms of what you said in terms of that legacy that understanding the fact that you can see it in perspective that we're all on a journey whether it's an age journey whether it's going through a school system whether it's going through a family you know all these things change from day to day month to month year to year generation to generation and I think that then feels very kind of freeing like you said when you talk about intuition and and all of those Mm -hmm. sort of insightful things because then you feel like you're all on a path together and you fit Mm -hmm. into it wherever you do we don't know where we are and like you say it might be that you happen to get that shiny new thing and it might be that actually you 
create that for the next person in your shiny new thing should that be the important thing that you want to gain comes later on and and at some point it will all kind of even out absolutely yeah 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 everything evens out and i think it's i think it's helpful um and you know just acknowledging that it's a bummer you know it's it's, it's okay too <laughs> but also you know that's just also the i think for kids helping them uh, understand that that's also just kind of a part of life that as just as you said that we're we all are part of this larger collective we don't always see or appreciate or understand how people have contributed to what we're enjoying right now and things tend to level out later i think it's just a good lesson for lesson for all of us to keep in mind yeah for sure I really liked your insights in terms of the the being trained for what it is that we do. And like you say, financial planning and understanding mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense that that's not on the forefront of our skill set if you've worked your way through the education system because we're, you know, we're trained in education rather than that kind of management style and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So when you get involved in schools and these projects and that kind of thing, do you find that's because people realize that's the case and they can then look for your knowledge base and your experience and your understanding to support them or is it more the fact that someone said we're completely in crisis now we need to get someone in how what how does that often work yeah unfortunately it's usually the latter um so usually i get brought in because um folks are underwater um you know for a long time i did this work within a school like a, a school district so um you know i was on staff and you know wherever the fire was the biggest that's where i would go <laughs> so so that was true um now that i work independently um sometimes as they realize that they have a gap i think in general we as educators are so overworked uh, we're always we have so many hats we're trying to wear um and when things become urgent then suddenly they re- we reach out for help and i wish we would do it sooner and kind of take you know recognize that we actually we get to rest and we can have experts help us that's what's actually the norm everywhere else in most other industries but somehow in education we think we have to know all of it learn all of it figure it out on our own i think some of it's the economic reality of what we live in um but also you know not even knowing that there are other resources out there so yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm mostly a fire putter outer. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you I think you hit the nail on the head there. There's that kind of system change in terms of um understanding, you know, like I say, the, the world works in very different ways outside of the education system. It's been set for such a long time and it is what it is. And and I always think about how on earth does that change over time? But I, I had the fantastically interesting conversation with um Jonathan Lear recently, who I interviewed for the National Association for Primary Education podcast, which I, I run separately. And on that, he was talking about how they were redefining their curriculum. And mm. they were talking about the kind of feedback you get as a pupil and it's that kind of they want to do well for their parents if they're going to come in and show them what to do they want to do well for their their teachers because they want to show what's going on but actually what they did was they also went back even further so they were doing a design project so they went and got people outside in the community but outside of the school who were designers who came in and would actually critique it in a way which was supportive of course in what they were trying to do for the school but honest in terms of but have you thought about this have you thought about that what what about would this actually work you know and taking you sort of down that kind of path mm-hmm. and then i thought that's fantastic because in, in the conversation that we're having, it's that kind of, oh, I now understand there are professional people or people who know more than I do 
and the school was able to go well we, we don't know about this why don't we go and talk to someone who really does and i guess there's an organicness about that which if enough schools start to think along those lines or they have the opportunity then then maybe it's more of an organic change that can change these things rather than a wholesale kind of policy yeah i think that's i think that's a really that's brilliant and i agree you know i when i when i go into a school or community i mean that's actually i there's a process where you actually get to know what's around you. So outside of your school community, who are your partners? Who are the people that you can bring in? And not only do you get insights that are going to make your school plan differently, but you also gain advocates and people who are going to know your school or know your district's plan and will support you later. I think people that come in and interact with schools gets their minds going. I think the more people that know and are thinking about um, whatever we're envisioning in a school, the better, because they're, you know, I know it, sometimes it feels like, oh, there's just too many cooks in the kitchen. We have to control what part they're managing. We don't want everybody putting the spice in at the same time. But um, the more people who know and understand our vision, then the more people are out there that are going to be advocates spontaneously, because you never know who's going to be at a cocktail party or whatever and make those connections for you. So I think it's powerful both for the strength of the plan, but also then for the community's commitment to the school. So open those doors. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that. And, and and interestingly, you know, having talked about the finance and what you want to do, but like I say, the advocacy is amazing, isn't it? Because people mm -hmm. want to be part of a community. They want that human interaction. They want to feel like they're able to support children, especially in terms of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um and then, you know, like I say, there may be someone with a vast amount of money that can actually physically help you do that in, in one fell Absolutely. swoop. Mm -hmm. But it also might be that they just want to support it in a way that, like I say, brings their entire network into your world. It can help in so many other ways. And I guess that's the thing about your your intuition and, and, and actually just going with what you feel is right and actually allowing the world to take care of itself but that like I say that that's a kind of a very strong place to be which again is brilliant within education but you can understand where that fear factor comes in like I say when so many educators are kind of I've got to do this I've got to do that I can't get it wrong I can't open up I'm safeguarding mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff which is absolutely valid but it does take that kind of fearless leadership sometime I think to kind of make that change I think you're right. I think it takes a fearless leadership. That's also why I say like use all three lenses because then you can kind of triangulate your data. I think it's helpful. And unfortunately for school leaders, I mean, fortunately in some ways and unfortunately in others, we have to prove why we're doing what we're doing. We have to know it's going to be successful because we're, you know, we're kind of experimenting, so to speak, on the with the lives and learning experiences of kids. Um, but uh, when we get so stuck in that place of the compliance, that compliance energy or the we're going to do some data to prove how we're being successful with our kids. Um, we lose the creativity and the inventiveness and the intuition that actually I think is really alive when we're in the classroom. So I think we have that. We're kind of naturally like that as humans, but as educators, we're quick on our feet, right? Like we have to adjust in, you know, we make a million micro decisions and adjustments often based on feel um, when we're in a classroom. And the higher up we get, the more decisions we end up making, we start to lose sight of that part of ourselves. And I just think it's a powerful part to bring forward again. I do think that those fearless leaders, the leaders that are willing to, to go out there and really kind of go with what their instincts are telling them tend to make really profound changes and they're really compelling. And, you know, when you talk to others, every, you know, going to school is one of the shared experiences that most of us have um, as humans. And so people love school and want to support schools. And um, and if we can be compelling and share a compelling vision, people want to be on board because, yeah, either they had a bad experience and they want to make it better for someone else or they had a great experience and they want to pass that along as well.
Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing you just reminded me of there um, was something I heard recently was a, a phrase called teach live. Mm. And and he said it's that kind of, you know, it's a, it's those millions, um, million interactions and thought processes and that that are going on in this moment, you know, mm-hmm. the, the feel of the room, the fact this child needs this help or something. Mm-hmm. There's a bee in the room. <laughs> Don't ignore it. You know, just kind of <laughs> we are we are where we are today. And, and, and that can be very subtle in terms of, like I said, about the energy you're putting out. Or it could be something larger than that. But mm-hmm. all of that kind of, I guess, is bringing you back into the present, isn't it? And actually being in the moment. And, and that's kind of... Uh, has to be a good thing from a well-being point of view for everyone as well as well as sort of the, the grander con- conversations too so yeah absolutely um so tell us a little bit about an experience within your school life a, a teacher or a situation that you uh, remember vividly but is uh mm. and, and how did that kind of work in terms of you know you wanting to go into education or, or sort of understanding how you wanted to show up as a teacher yeah, I love that question. So my favorite teacher was a, a man named Mr. Haas. He was my sixth grade teacher, which is, um, I don't know how to translate that into UK language. I was 11, so I'm not quite sure what that is, but um, <laughs> he was that. Um, and uh, for me, that was the, I was the oldest in like the <clears throat> primary grades there. And he was also my neighbor. And what I loved about him was he made class fun. So he he was serious. There were rules. It wasn't like there was like, you know, it wasn't loosey goosey in his classroom at all, but there was fun and there was joy. And he played with us and he he would go out during recess, which would normally be his break. And he would play kickball with us out on the yard and he took us on adventures and we could laugh in the classroom and we could learn. And because he was my neighbor, he sometimes would just spontaneously come by with his daughter and we'd go to ice cream or we would just hang out. Like he loved kids and loved hanging out with kids and um, and just made us all feel really seen. And I, I knew I wanted to be a teacher before I had him. After having him as a teacher, it cemented that in my mind. Like that's what I wanted to do. And, and when I was a teacher and even as a school administrator, that's what I try to emulate. And, and I still do when I'm around kids, actually. Um, so he's really heavily influenced me of just what it feels like to be seen by an adult who just wants to talk to you and get to know you. They're not condescending to you. And he gave me a lot of great advice that I still use. And I'm finding myself using with my son, who's now 12. So just a little bit older than I was when I had him. Um, so he's just wonderful. And I actually visited him as an adult, as a teacher. And it was really neat talking with him then too, because he just met me right where I was. And yeah, it was just wonderful. I think that's brilliant because what I think you encapsulated it perfectly there, meeting someone where they are. And and mm-hmm. I think that's incredibly powerful when you do it on an age-related basis. Like I say, we are where we are, but also on an emotional you know, level as well. It's that kind of being where you are with anybody at that given time, you know, not mm-hmm. making it, it should be like this, should be like that. This is where we are now. I'm this age, you're this age, or, you know, I'm interested in you and, and everything that's going on. I think that's incredibly, incredibly powerful. And like you say, the being seen is is just so integral to that because it is, there's just a connection there, which is unsaid, but makes a profound difference because you're not the first person to say that, that to me on the podcast, you know, it's that oh, really? being seen yeah. and felt, it just comes across so powerfully. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you you talked about some advice you were given there. Is there some advice that you've 
it's made a big difference in your life and, and also is there any advice you give your younger self and I do often caveat this with the fact that I know certainly as a teenager there may have been some great advice I was given but you don't necessarily always want to take it on board at that age but by the same token if you've never heard it you can't use it can you so yeah, that's true. You know, I often actually give my, I give, this is more for educators, but I would, I would give, I give it to my child too. Or so I would give it to my younger self, which is actually just go towards your joy as much as possible. I, I think we get really mired down by the challenges in the world and by all these have tos and shoulds and we lose sight of joy. And I think finding moments to have joy every day is a big deal. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, it could be little. It can be smelling roses on your walk or something else, but just little ways to have joy. I think it's a big deal. I think that's really important. And I, and I also think one of the things that I have to work really hard on is the fact that just do the next moment and the next moment and the next moment and allow the rest of it to take care of itself. Cause it's mm -hmm. every small thing builds up to a big thing and you don't really have control over that. I don't think that I think that, that then just takes care of itself but you're so free in a way that actually you're then able to live your best life because the path is there for you to do it and it's amazing how the world opens up but i think certainly for me i know what it's like to get fearful just a few steps down to that to then want to you go back to your norm which i think in education <clears> is, is one of those things like we said about fearless leaders you know they know they want to do that they're they're being told intuitively that this is the way forward but i've still have mm -hmm. to answer to these people which you know practically is true but i think that being able to show up in that fearless way each time as we said is is really important yeah you said something that just reminded me which is um like following the breadcrumbs so you know if you can stay in joy and then you can take one step at a time you'll be amazed at where you go and, and i actually tend to default towards like i have the vision and i I run pell-mell towards that vision and then end up being maybe not quite right. So I need to slow down a little bit. And so I, I love what you just said there around one step at a time and, and it, you will get where you're going and it does build on itself for sure. Yeah. Um, take a breath, take a breath, take a breath, <laughs> be okay with uncertainty. I know that's hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the more we say, it, hopefully the more it resonates with somebody that usually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and is there a resource you'd like to share with us? And it could be a podcast, a video, film, song, anything which has just had a really impactful experience on your life. You know, um, I don't have a specific one. I have a practice that I would always, that I'd love to recommend for educators, which is to develop some kind of mindfulness practice. Um, it doesn't have to be a lot during the day. Um, and so my resource would be YouTube or, you know, there's apps on your phone. Um, but there's a lot of research that shows if you spend just five minutes a day um, slowing down, doing all of what we've just been talking about, um, practicing just a little bit of mindfulness during the day, um, it makes a huge impact on your personal life and also on your experience with your kids. So it goes back to all the things we were talking about around how we show up with our kids and how they reflect back their our energy to them. Um, teachers that practice mindfulness have better classroom environments. Um, they're more intentional with their interactions with kids. It actually changes how they teach, even though they don't change any, they're not learning to teach something differently. It literally just changes their effectiveness as teachers. So try and five, five minutes a day. That's my resource. Yeah. <laughs> five minutes of, of mindfulness during the day. Um, lots of, lots of really great um, practices out there um, that you can access for free. Um, and so pick the one that feels most that resonates most with you. Don't overthink it. If it feels right, do that. 
um, yeah. and just do a little bit of it. So that's my yeah. resource. Yeah, love that. <laughs> love that. Yeah, exactly. That kind of intuition again. Go with what you feel. Yep. No right, no wrong. Just go with it. And just what um, feels good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'll just yeah. hold my hand up and say, when you think you don't have those five minutes, that's when you need to find probably 10 rather than five. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always say, I mean, even like one minute strung together over the course of the day would be okay, right? Five one-minute moments. We all have five one-minute moments. And I'll give you an example. You can do another minute in the shower. If you're driving and you're at a stoplight, you'll definitely get five minutes there. Don't close your eyes, obviously, at the stoplight, but you can actually practice breathing and not looking at your phone and multitasking during that moment. Um, yeah, you can find five minutes. I sometimes would sit in my car um, and just do it there before I like got back to the busyness of whatever I was doing next. So, Yeah, I, I, I love the, that car analogy because it is mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, couple of minutes before you set off or the not jumping straight out of the car and going straight into your next thing just in a amount just to collect yourself and then do that I think that's that's fantastic yeah. Yeah. brilliant so just before we, we finish up tell people obviously where they can find out more about you but also if, if they if they get hold of the book what, what would be a key takeaway that you hope people would get from that Oh, thank you. So the best way to find me is um, at my website, which I think you've listed. Um, it's it's related to the Your Three Eyes. So it's www.youryour, the number three, E-Y-E-S.com. If you go there, you'll just find a lot of resources around um, how to use intellect, insight, and intuition. Um, also access to my podcast um, and lots of freebies because I'm an educator. I like to do free things. Um, uh, from my book, my hope that you, you take away is something we didn't talk about, but my belief is that we need to start by working on ourselves um, before we work on our school systems. We've, we've been talking about it, un, you know, not explicitly, but um, in addition to the three eyes, I talk about this self-work, school-work cycle, which basically means that when we work on ourselves, um, we're better able to work on the hard stuff around our classrooms or our schools to make them more effective. And working on ourselves doesn't mean being hard on ourselves, but actually having a lot of compassion and care for ourselves and some of the self-awareness that we've been talking about. So my hope would be that if you read the book, you learn a, bit, a little bit of how to do that and why that's helpful for you as an individual, as well as as an educator. Fantastic. Well, if there isn't any other reason you've ever heard to go and do that, I would just recommend going to buy that straight away because that's right. <laughs> that's exactly what I think what we all know we need. And hopefully there are many educators on that path already. But I think if you need any support so. and that knowledge is going to be absolutely incredible. So Megan, thank you so much for sharing all of those insights. It's always great to hear how it's working in the US as well as the UK. And, and I think at the heart of it, which is the thing that always just makes me full of joy is the fact that it, it's all about us. It's all about how we show up. It's all about us as humans, no matter where we're living and what our school district and our circumstances, we can make it as we want to with a bit of understanding and it sounds like the work you're doing is uh, the epitome of that. So yeah, thank you very much for being here and also for the work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. And yeah, thank you for this lovely podcast. And um, yeah, thanks to everybody who's listening. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.